0: This podcast is an unedited excerpt from a live MCLE webcast. See the episode notes for details about the speakers and links to the program's full video and audio recording. Get access to everything MCLE offers for one low subscription fee with the MCLE online pass. Try it for free for a month. Go to
1: www.mcle.org onlinepass Please note that MCLE's products, services, and communications are offered solely as an aid to developing and maintaining professional competence. The statements in this recording may not apply to your circumstances and no legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice
0: is being read. All
2: right, welcome back everyone. Our next presentation is about labor law. We have Damian DiGiovanni and we have Paige McKissack. And I would ask you both to please just introduce yourselves and then
1: go ahead and dive right in.
0: Sure. Paige, I don't know if you, I, I can go first. Uh, my name is D. DiGiovanni. I'm a partner at the law firm of Morgan Brown and Joy, um, and my practice focuses primarily on um, management side labor and employment law. So, um, you know, we're going to be giving an overview of, of the law itself, but with a little bit of a management side uh, bent. Um, and my esteemed colleague on the other side, I'm sure we'll have a little twist her way too, but it's nice to be here with everybody and I'm looking forward to our presentation today.
2: Good morning, everyone. My name is Paige McKissick. I'm a partner at siegel um in Boston. I practice, practice exclusively uh, plaintiff side labor and employment law. Um, so on the other side of Damon, I represent just unions and employees. Um, both with respect to traditional labor law issues and also individual employment cases. And I look forward to talking with you all today.
0: All right, great. Who's going to start off? Uh, I will get us started here. So did you want to just share my screen, Hillary? That sounds good. All right.
1: Start
0: the mm-hmm. All right. So, as you've probably known, that's why you're here. We're going to be um, giving you a labor law presentation today, uh, both covering the National Labor Relations Act, which is the federal law and Chapter 150E, which is the public sector law in Massachusetts, um, and uh so when we get started. It's mostly going to be on the federal side, but as I said, we're going to cover both aspects of the two different laws. So what are we talking about here today? Um, the National Labor Relations Act is the basically the governing law um, that covers all labor law across the country on the federal side. Um, it was passed in 1935, um, and it really established, as it says here, the core principles of labor relations in the private sector um and uh, most of the public sector laws including 150e uh kind of have a lot of the underpinnings of the nlra and a lot of it was sort of formed after the federal law and again that the nlra along with the fair labor standards act were really the sort of um two big great um, new deal laws that were passed in the 1930s and are still sort of alive and well today Um, and i'm going to discuss all of these things in more detail today but it broadly it, it really did four major things. Um, first, it provided protections for employees to engage in concerted protective activity in the workplace. Um, and Paige is going to talk a little bit more detail about that today. Um, but it really sort of any type of concerns or issues with um, work-related issues, there's a protections for employees, you know, with guardrails. Um, but it, it gave employees much more protections than they had beforehand, including Uh, the right to strike, which I would would define as the ultimate protective activity Um, and, frankly, one of the strongest economic weapons employees have um, in in sort of trying to better their uh, workplace and and wages and conditions and other things. It it also provided a process by which employees could unionize. You know, the Act doesn't impose unionization, um, but it gives a structured way to get there. Um, and again, we're going to talk about in more detail what that is. But essentially, if you meet certain criteria, you're going to get your, um, you're going to get your at bat and a chance to have a union represent you as an employee. Um, third, it, it it created an obligation um, for employers to engage in collective bargaining with the union. And, and what that means is The Act doesn't require parties on either side to agree to anything in a collective bargaining agreement, which is really the end game of the unionization process, and it sets the terms and conditions of a unionized workplace. But it requires an employer to sit down with the union and bargain over um, wages, hours, and then broadly speaking, terms and conditions of employment, which is very broad um, and covers just about anything you could think about um, in the workplace, you know, some, the basics, you know, leaves, vacations, uh, overtime provisions to sort of the, my new, you know, holiday hams at Christmas time and things like that. Uh, and all of those things are, are bargainable topics and things that um, a union can say we want to negotiate over these things and, and establish some rules um, at the at the bargaining table. And then lastly, what it did was it established the National Labor Relations Board um which is the administrative agency that administers the act um, and frankly is charged with protecting those rights both on the union side and the employer side um the act is reciprocal and there's protections on both sides uh and national labor relations board is the the, again the agency that's going to oversee that law um, and make case law precedent and make determinations about violations elections campaigns and things like that so what is the board Well, the board is, as described here, it's a quasi-judicial board, and it consists of five members appointed by the president, and then they're approved by the Senate. Um, And it's important to understand the makeup of the board is always a three to two, um, with the majority shifting to the party that's in the White House. Um, So you'll probably hear both of us talking today, you know, if we talk about cases, you know, the case that was decided under the Trump board or cases that were decided under the Obama board, um, it's not designed to be a four-letter word. Um, really, what it does is signal to practitioners, and when you're doing research and looking at cases, um, that as I said, a, a democratically led board, a Democrat-led board, is generally going to be favorable to employees and unions and lean left. Um, and a Republican in the White House is generally going to appoint board members that sort of lean right in terms of um, protections for employers. And um, and so it's important when you hear me say something like the Trump board, or, or again, the Obama board, it's not it's not supposed to be designed for any political persuasion, just to get an idea of where those cases might land. Um, and as it says here, the NLRB has been uh, increasingly politicized in recent years. Um, and actually, uh, recent may not be the best word for it, because this has sort of been a thing since probably the 80s, where there's always going to be a little bit of a shift in terms of the precedent and case law, depending on who is in Washington, but it's it's really become more dramatic over the last three or four administrations. And this is important if you're representing clients in, in this field or you're getting into labor relations law, because what we've sort of come to expect um, as a practitioner is you really need to advise clients that what the law is today may change in four years. And, and I know that sounds dramatic, but there have been, Again, over the last few administrations, cases that have been sort of in play for a very long time, and and unions and employers have come to rely on those cases where they've been overturned. And then three, four years later, they're overturned again. Um, And again, just from a practitioner standpoint, it's important to understand that because I I find it to be really unique um, in this field because, you know, again, We've got to advise clients on our toes like, you know, you can do these certain things, or this is the rules. These are the rules now, but it may change. Um, And those sort of types of comments become more prevalent after election day, um, and depending on who ends up uh, sitting in the White House. Um, There's 26 regional offices, and that's really where the start of any issue on the labor side will begin. So on for labor practice charges, which we're going to talk about today, petitions for elections. All of that gets um, uh, administered at the regional level. Um, and really the board in Washington sits as basically the, the top appeals uh, uh, in that process. But what you'll be dealing with mostly as a practitioner is at, at the regional level. Um, region one is the Massachusetts uh, local office um, and that sits in Boston. And then there's you know, the others spread out across the country. Um, And again, as I spoke about the unique, the unique issues practicing in this field, so keep that in mind as we're going through today um, when we talk about certain things and how some of those have shifted over the years, um, depending on the administration and and one last point on that. Uh, The board members are, are appointed in staggered shifts so it's not like every four years you get an entirely new board so there's a little bit of lag time. Once these change over, but essentially every year or so, they're going to be a new appointment. Um, And then, presumably, again, if it doesn't get held up in the Senate, um, a confirmation of that, and then they'll sit. And right now, um, Chairman McFarren, she is the head of the, you know, she's the chairperson of the chairman of the NLRV. Chairman, uh, member Wilcox, member Prouty, those are all. Democrat appointed members, and then members Ring and Kaplan are holdover Republican um, committee members and uh, board members. And then again, those will shift as the years move on here. So first, I'm going to talk about the unionization um, process. And as I mentioned before, the NRA doesn't impose it. um, And really, it sets up a a basically a democratically sort of election uh, where employees get to choose. Um, And I'll get to how they get to that election. But really, it's allowed for choice, and and it's a fifty plus one situation. And if the employees vote and they want to bring a union in, that union's there for you know until they decide they don't want them there. But for the most part, once they get in, they're in for a very long time. Um, uh, and and it's rare, I would say, at least in my experience, where they once they're in, they're not there for a long time. Um, and you know, we hear about the big things in the news about you know the Amazon petitions and Amazon election campaigns and. General Motors strikes, but really, and these these figures are a little dated, but they haven't changed much in the years since then, you know, 25 to 30 is about the average size of a unit across the country. And, you know, notably, you only need two people to unionize. Um, you need to have more than one to engage in concerted activity, but unions can, union or units can be as small as two and as large as, you know, multiple thousands. Um and uh so it's you know there really is no sort of limit on what that's gonna be. And then you, you can also have subsets of employees at certain employers. So you might say all the custodians uh at, at, at ABC University. So you wouldn't they wouldn't have everybody, but there'd be a subset and a smaller group that's um in those uh in those units. And then one of the other big differences between the private and the public sector is under the NLRA, you'll eventually have an election, which I'm gonna talk about. In the public sector, it's a card check. So if people sign an authorization card, there's no election. If it's 50% plus one of the unit that is trying to petition, if they have those cards and they've got more than 50%, then the union's in without an election. So that's an important distinction between the NLRA um, and chapter 150 There's been some push. Um, the current general counsel in Washington Um, has made some sort of, uh, has raised discussions about whether they want to do that under the National Labor Relations Act. I don't know if that's going to move forward. Um, The election process is pretty well ingrained um, under the Act, but something to think about that there's certainly been discussions over the years, especially when there's been a um, Democrat-led NLRB and General Counsel, where there's been some discussions about taking that public sector process and putting it under the Act, but nothing nothing to think about right now. And and frankly, there's nothing sort of in the works that that's gonna happen anytime soon. So more about about the process itself. Um, As I see it, there's really two primary methods of forming a union. Um, One of them is is basically asking an employer for voluntary recognition. And oftentimes um, employees or unions that have experienced unions will go to the employer and say, look, An overwhelming majority of the employees in this unit want us to represent them. Rather than go through the entire process under the Act, just voluntarily recognize us. Um, Usually there's some verification. They'll say, we've got the cards. We can agree to a a process where we'll bring in an arbitrator or something to review the cards, and assuming they've got the majority, um, it it basically cuts out the process of going through the Act. This is a very, at least in my experience, a, a common first step. Um, you know, it may save time, it may save money, and oftentimes if it's very clear that they do have the majority, um, some employers will say, okay, um, I, I would say, but but for the most part, a majority of employers won't for a couple of reasons. One, um, not to say anyone's being untruthful, but they, they won't know necessarily whether or not they do have the majority, there's ways to check, but but really the common re- refrain is, They don't want to alienate their employees and you know this should be a free choice election and you know if the union wins because they win at the election okay but a lot of employers will say we don't want to require our employees to do that without them having a voice in that without them going to an election and voting on it um oftentimes where you might see it more common is if it's a smaller unit so if you've got like five employees and all five of them come into the boss's office and say we want to join the union oftentimes an employer will say, okay, well, that that's a little bit um, different than, you know, a 500-person unit where they haven't heard from anybody. But so they can do it that way. There's sort of mechanisms for doing it and, and confirming. But oftentimes, unions will ask and employers will, will say, no, um, let's go through the process. So absent voluntary recognition, the NLRB has a process under the act by which um, employees who want to unionize um, gets to a point where they can get to an election, and the first thing what they need is what's called a, a showing of interest. So unions will have employees sign authorization cards, which again in the private sector just basically say I am interested in union A representing me, you know, for, to, to negotiate my terms and condition of employment. Paraphrasing a little bit, um, but if you get 30% of the petition for unit, you've got an adequate showing of interest to go to the National Labor Relations Board and start the process. So. If you've got 10 employees in a unit, four of them sign this card, they can go to the board and say, we've got a sufficient strong of interest. Let's start the process. Um, my experience has been, and Paige and can agree or disagree that unions usually don't go to the board unless they feel pretty confident that they've got a majority. Um, so while 30% is a threshold to get you in the door, a lot of times it's well over 50% of employees that have signed cards. Um, and I think it's just because uh, we all think if we're gonna move to something like that and there's gonna be election, both sides wanna make sure they're gonna win. Um, and, and so that's been my experience with that. But 30% gets you in the door um, and 50%, which I'm gonna talk about in a second, would, would win you the election. Um, and if, again, once you do that, you file your cards in what's called the petition for, um, petition for election, um, and that starts the process, which I'm going to talk about in a second. But before I get there, um, I want to talk a minute about solicitation issues, um, which is really um, how employees and the union generate interest and, in, in, you know, the, to get the employees to say, we want you to represent us. Um, and to do that, you've got to kind of present to the employees that your life can be better with us representing you. Uh, we can get you a better uh, We can get you better terms and condition of employment higher wages and things like that um but the union's gotta gotta sort of instruct and inform and and educate the employees as to why it would be better um and there are rules that that govern this And, and a lot of these have been set by case law precedent over the years um but a lot of times most labor law most not all uh labor law questions begin when a union seeks to represent employees the act covers both unionized and non-unionized employees. But a lot of times, you know, in my experience, clients will have never had any issue under the National Labor Relations Act until they get a letter from a union or a petition filed from the board saying, hey, a group of your employees want to unionize. Um, And there are rules, again, about solicitation. And and really what the board has tried to do over the years is is balance, as it says here, the rights of employees to organize um, with the rights of employees to run their business. And, uh, you know, for the most part, they've struck a pretty fair balance um, in terms of uh, weighing those two interests. So some of these things, you know, they see here when an employee can solicit. So the board's pretty clear that if you're supposed to be on the factory floor making widgets from 10 to 12, you can't stop and, or stop your other employees from working to talk about the union. And, and that makes sense. You're there to work. Um, you're getting paid for that work. But oftentimes there's no prohibition against doing it at lunch or on break time or certainly after work. Um, and and these questions have come up and the board has sort of drawn a line about that on the when. Um, distribution and postings, of course, unions or, and employees that support them want to get the word out um, and they want to sort of say, hey, we're going to have a meeting. We're going to talk about these things. We're going to sort of try to educate you on, on the process here. And for the most part, they're allowed to do that. Um, now, where the board has drawn the line and put some restrictions on that, for instance, if an employer has a very strict No solicitation policy at all at the workplace. Um, And that means, you know, I couldn't put up a a flyer saying I'm collecting money for my daughter's Little League team. Um, You know, and that sounds sort of heartless, but oftentimes employers will say, look, we we don't want to have a distinction here. We're going to draw a clear line. We don't allow any type of postings at all. Um, And if that's your policy, a lot of times you're going to be able to say, then union or employees that support can't put stuff up on a bulletin board. If they do allow, non-work related postings an employer is going to have a hard time you know clients will often call and say do i have to let them keep this up well what do you do with other postings well we let them stay up well <laughs> they're going to have a hard time arguing at that point that they can take down just a union specific because the nlrb is going to look at that like you're targeting that group and you're being anti-union which you can't do unless it's a uniform consistency there um use of email obviously this has become more prevalent over the last 10 20 years and again the same rules apply rarely do employers have email policies that say you absolutely cannot use your email for anything else besides work-related issues if you do have that policy you'd be on stronger grounds to say employers can't solicit through our email process but for the most part they don't have that and it's not a it's a it's a tough battle to wage that that employees can't use an email email server um, and then there's lastly there's a distinction between employee rights and non-employee rights so if you can, you know, if you can distribute and you're an employee, you know, I can't kick you off the property, you're an employee, you know, you're employed by me or the employer. Um, but if you're not an employee and you're a representative of Union ABC, um, I've got privacy rights and I've got property rights and, and if unless, and, and basically this this was a case called um, Leachmere VNLRB um, that was decided in the early 90s um, and unless there's absolutely no other way for a union to get to employees and, and um, engage with them. Employers have a right to say you can't come on the property as long as you you enforce that policy uniformly. So again, if you don't let the Girl Scouts come and ask ask you know for donations or or this you know the um, Salvation Army to ring a bell on your premises, and you're you know absolutely one hundred percent, we don't let anyone on the property, you're in better shape to say that's our policy, and it applies to everybody. But there is a distinction between some of the rights between employees um that are supportive of the union and union employees that don't work for a company and and again lastly on this point the board the underpinning of all of these cases the board will look at this in in the lens of consistency um and where you're allowed to do certain things as long as you do it um as long as you apply those policies and rules to everyone um and to the board in a case where if there's an unfair labor practice they're going to ask you for information about what, what, what are your what are your policies? What are your solicitation policies? Is there any history of you saying no to, to, to another uh third party? And and if, if there is, then you're in good shape. If there isn't, and all of a sudden you're changing this now to, to sort of react to a union campaign, it's gonna be a much, much more difficult argument to make before the board. So uh, to get back to sort of the specific petition process, um, as I mentioned, and I'll sort of speak briefly about the background here. It's a fast moving process and it always has been. Um, the, what the board wants to do is, is move forward with these things quickly and, and, and because they want to make sure that if employees do want to bring in a union, that they're not un, unduly delayed. Um, again, they want to balance that with an employer's position of saying, we want to be able to educate our employees on this to make sure they're making an informed decision. Uh, In 2015, under the Obama board, they sped up an already fast process where you could get a petition on Monday, and you're at a hearing the following Tuesday with your position and list of employees in the unit on that Monday beforehand. Um, The idea behind that uh, was the the quicker the process, the less time and that that employers could run what what some would describe as an anti-union campaign, what employers would describe as a sort of information campaign. But uh, what happened in 2019 was um, the board changed its rules under the Trump board. Uh, They were challenged, but most of them were upheld by the D.C. Circuit. Um, And again, it slowed down the process a bit. So rather than having a hearing in eight days, they changed it to a hearing would be scheduled for 14 business days out. Um, and rather than having to have a statement of position within seven days, you've got uh, eight business days to do that. And I'm going to talk about the impact of those things. But just keep in mind, there is a, there are very strict time periods uh, involved here and deadlines, and you get a little bit of leeway under the new rules, which I think are going to stay. Um, I, I don't want to speak for anyone, but um, my experience has been with practitioners that represent unions is they, they've, I think, liked the additional time, too, because there's a lot going on. And by that, I mean, once the petitions filed, uh, a lot of things need to happen. Um, the employer needs to gather a list of everyone in the petition for union, in the unit. So they don't decide who that is, the union does. So the union may say, we wanna represent all adjunct professors at this school. So then it's a, the employer has to put together a list um, uh, with their name, job classification shifts um, and and work and and sort of location of where they work. And that's for two reasons one just to make sure the board understands you know whether the size of the unit is correct and two they want to confirm the showing of interest. Um, You also need to decide whether there are any unit issues going on, Um, and that would be explained in the statement of position so, for instance, you may get a petition uh, to represent all professors and all janitors now an employer may say that's not an appropriate unit because they don't share a community of interest with what they do their job conditions might be different their pay may be wildly different that's an extreme example but the board will make sure that the petition for a unit generally shares a community of interest and really the reason why is when you sit down at the table assuming the union wins to negotiate a contract it's difficult to negotiate a CBA where you've got two markedly different groups of employees so that may be one issue um it may be a situation where the union has said Certain, certain employees should be in the unit and the employer says these are supervisors who are statutorily prohibited from unionizing. Um, and the, whatever the issues are, the, union, uh, the employer needs to make that position clear to the board when they file their statement of position. Uh, if they don't do that, um, they waive their right to argue it. The board will still make a decision about it, but the employer is going to lose the right to argue that at a hearing. But um, those are things that are sort of critically important that happen in, in a short period of time. Um, And sort of as I advise clients and sort of a practice point is once you start to get um, uh, a whip or an understanding that there may be a campaign going on um, at your workplace, and and I feel like it's less of a secret these days. I think social media has played a big part in this, and a lot of times, a lot of unions and, and employees that want to unionize will try to rally support with the public, depending on the sector that they're in. So usually there's a you'll you'll employers will know that it might be coming down, and if they do, as I often advise clients to start getting organized like now. Uh, so when a petition is filed you'll be ready to not only um, have that list together, but to also sort of prepare if there are any unit issues that are involved here. Um, and. All of that leads up to what's potentially sort of a hearing before the National Labor Relations Board so, or the regional office at the National Labor Relations Board. And, and that's really if there's a disputed issue, for instance, supervisors um, that shouldn't unionize or um, a community of interest issue, like I talked about before, and the parties cannot work out an agreement, um, the, the rule of thumb is really if, there's, if, if 20% of the petition for a unit is affected, the board will have a hearing. If it's less than that, the board will go to an election and tell the parties work it out afterwards and if you can't come back to us and we'll figure it out. Um, But I will tell you sort of again, and and then again, you go to a hearing, um, and both sides will present arguments generally it's the employer's burden because they're disputing um, some appropriateness question of the unit. Um, Employers have to present their case they've got to present evidence they've got to bring witnesses in, Um, then the union can either respond with their own case or they can say, They didn't prove it here. We think we've got an appropriate unit. Um, Parties get to file briefs, legal briefs, and the board will make a decision about that. And and assuming that there's some appropriate unit left on the other side, they'll move forward to the election, which I'll talk about. I I will tell you, I don't wanna say most, but a lot of times what ends up happening though is that union lawyer will call and say, look, we filed the petition. And frankly, the board will try to help facilitate this. Is there a way to get to an agreement on uh, what's called a stipulated election where there may be some small issues to work out in the unit, but assuming there's no major contention with the appropriateness of the unit, a lot of times both parties are gonna work together um, to get to what's called a stipulated election agreement. And usually you'll advise clients where you know if they wanna represent a certain group of, of employees and there's nothing inherently wrong with it, You know, the, the employer may not want a union, But if there's no issue with the appropriateness of the unit, obviously it's not something you're gonna contest through a sort of litigated process at the board, whether it's the lawyers or the reps, they're gonna talk to each other, they're gonna work through the board and sometimes they'll get to an election agreement where say, okay, fine, this is what the unit's gonna look like, here's when the election's gonna be, we're gonna avoid any hearing or need to file any um, statements of position. And that happens, I would say, more often than you might think. Um, Very rarely are there huge, threshold issue sometimes there are and and of course if there are there's a process to deal with that but um, oftentimes practitioners in the field will kind of figure out a way to work through that and get to an election um, and I, i'm not gonna spend too much time in this particular slide but this is what um, this was the sort of background of what happened with with the rules and um, if you just sort of look at the bottom there that's the new those are the new deadlines and um, at least from the employer perspective, uh, this was a welcome change. Um, it just it gave just a little bit more time to sort of work with clients um, to figure out, put the list together, figure out if there are any issues. and frankly, it gave more time for the parties to to talk and, and negotiate potentially a stipulated election agreement. Um, in my experience, you know the board certainly, but I think unions too want to get to that agreement. Um, It costs money and time to to contest these at the board, and um, it it can take longer. And and usually it's, look, if there's nothing, again, nothing inherently wrong with the petition for group. It doesn't mean they're going to win the election. It doesn't mean you're conceding that um, you think your employees' life are going to be better off being represented. Um, All it means is we're going to skip over the contentiousness of it, and we're going to get to the election. And and again, that happens more often than not. Um, And then again, the biggest thing, too, from the lawyer perspective is, Um, under the old rules, you weren't allowed to, you weren't definitely allowed to file a brief if you went to a hearing and and you had to ask for it. And and as you might imagine, if you're in a five or six day hearing on a very complicated issue, you wanna gather your thoughts and put it down into a writing and and you you weren't necessarily guaranteed that right. That right has been restored. Um, You've got at least five business days after a hearing ends to file a brief. Oftentimes you can request more time That's up to the regional director, but um, that has been sort of reinserted as a matter of right, and I think again what I think has been welcome news for both sides, just because it allows both sides to make their best arguments um, if there's a contested issue. So next sort of on. um, campaign considerations and, and this becomes sort of the next step in the process so. Either there's a contested uh, hearing, and there's an argument about it, or there's a stipulated election agreement. Either way, let's it's going to get resolved at one point. And then the next thing is that there's going to be an election sometime down the road. Now, again, there's no specific timeline, but it is generally, I would say, within weeks, not months. Uh, board's not going to push it out more than three or four weeks, uh, you know, even if the parties were like, well, you know the union usually wouldn't agree to that months they're saying you've got to have an election within a month or less um, for whenever either there's an agreement or a decision by the board on the unit um, and once that happens as you might imagine um, in most cases both sides are presenting information to their constituency, in this case the employees um, to try to get them to have all of the information that they might need um, to make a decision come election time um, and like everything else with the board um, they have created rules around this um, and uh, sort of guidelines of what you can and can't do. And I'll talk about the consequences first and I'll get into what what the rules about it. But essentially, if if there's any type of sort of um, improper influence on either side, um, it could possibly throw the election out. Um, So I'm gonna talk about what that means, but essentially both sides, but mostly employers need to be very careful about what they do during this period of time between um, the setting of the election and the election itself, um, in terms of informing. But what employers will tell you is they want to use that time to inform the electorate about here's the information that you need um, to make an informed decision. And generally, these are sort of you can summarize it in these dos and don'ts with with the acronym TIPS. Some of these are probably inherent to a lot of you. Others are a little bit more nuanced. But really, um, what you can't do first threaten. So you've got an election coming up in three weeks supervisors and management cannot absolutely cannot go to employees and start saying things like well look if you guys vote yes you're all fired i mean that's the most stark example but you know it's sort of things like you know the the coffee at the in the break room is going to be gone or you know we're going to start taking away other smaller benefits the smaller threats are the ones that are sort of not as obvious but essentially any type of threat or any type of interpretation of threat has the potential to um, impact the, the free and clear sort of choice of the election. And so let's say an, a supervisor did that, and let's say the union loses the election, they can file what's called objections to the election and say, look, because of this threat, the election process was tainted and the board has the ability to throw out the election results and have a new one. And in worst cases, sort of a, um, so so anyway, it's very important for employers to follow these rules. The other one's interrogate you can't ask employees, you know, hey, who's voting? What do you think? Tell me, tell me who's leaning towards voting yes, so I can talk to that person, things like that. All of the, you know, who signed a card, all of those types of questions are impermissible under the act. Now, employers aren't, aren't sort of prohibited from getting information if an employee wants to share it. Um, oftentimes you may have an employee say, Hey, I just want to let you know that employees can hear that stuff, but they can't mind for more information. That's that's impermissible. Um Sort of the polar opposite of threats, you can't make promises um, to try to secure a certain vote. So you can't say, "Look, um, you know, we haven't had a raise in a few years, but if this, if this, you know, the election is a no and the union doesn't win, you're all getting you know $500 bonuses this year, or we're going to raise everyone's uh, salary by you know 10 percent." All of those things, as you might imagine, can have a, a uh, improper impact on the free, free and clear choice going into election. And then lastly, surveillance, um, sort of in the olden days, it might be driving by a union hall to see, you know, which, which of my employees cars are there now, it, you know, there's, there's unique issues about following folks on on social media and looking on Facebook and seeing what people are posting. And, you know, that's a lot, a little bit less clear about whether it's surveillance, but essentially the, the overriding law here is you shouldn't be sort of improperly Looking over an employee's shoulder to get information like that. Again, the the board's real um, mission here is to have a, a, a an election that's informed by free choice, but not influenced. Um, and and that's where you're going to run into trouble from an employer if you engage in any of these acts. And those, as it says here, can lead to unfair labor practice charges, which in the worst case can throw out an election um, that an employer otherwise had won. Now, on the flip side to that, you know. You're allowed to state facts, and you're allowed to state opinions. Um, Section 8c of the Act is essentially a free free speech proviso, where employers can say, "Look, I think, I don't think you need a union here. I think that life is good, and I think that it'll be it'll continue that way. And I don't think you need to have a third party injected into the workplace here." Um, You're allowed to state facts. You can say, "Look, if if the union comes in, part of your paycheck is likely going to go to union dues." Or you can say, "You know, you can talk about." The plant down the street has a union, and and look what they're doing. They're not nearly as good. As, uh, the benefits are not nearly as good as what we have. You're allowed to do all of that, um, but keeping in mind, and and when you're advising clients, you want to keep in mind that there's a very fine line between you know a manager stating his or her opinion and, and threatening or or making promises. And again, the, the the act doesn't prohibit you from your free speech rights, but you got to be very clear that you're not sort of wading into this water of of threats and interrogation. A Couple more slides here. So the the election itself is is conducted by the NLRB. Um, They have a whole process, they're very sort of involved and really what they'll do is they'll work with the parties um, to set up an election date, times um, when they might have an election and, and, and location of it. Um, it's a secret ballot election, whether it's in person or mail, which I'll talk about in just one second. Um, but but really, again, it's it's run like any other election that you might might be sort of familiar with. Um, and the board will set up a booth. You go in there with your your ballot, you check yes or no, and you put it in the ballot box and and you know no one else is going to see how you voted. Um, and and, as I said, are very unique issues depending on the the workplace you know you may have a nine to five um unit employee where we're going to vote it from nine to eleven and that's easy some some uh units as you might imagine have overnight shifts or they've got three shifts in the day and and sometimes the board will be will have a two to four uh shift of voting and then another 11 to 1 a.m um and i've i've had those as well and really what the 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 reasoning behind that is you want to get as many people to the to the polls and and allow as many employees the right to cast their ballot and and make a choice. Um, And I'm going to skip to the bottom here. The reason too, where you want a high turnout is the way the board will decide the election is it's 50% plus one of who votes. And that's very important to keep in mind. So as the example here says you may have 500 employees uh, in the proposed unit, but if only 10 people vote and six of them vote yes, they make the decision for the entire group. And conversely, if you've got 10 and uh, you know six people vote no, they make the decision for the entire group, um, or five people do. Ty, ties go to the employer, so it's got to be 50% plus one to get in for the union to win the election. But so that's why the board will be very sort of, um, despite the quirkiness or the time slots, they'll be very sort of open to different um, times and days where they're going to make sure that the most amount of people can can vote, um, and usually it's held at the employer's workplace. Um, you know, some some employers have big big rooms that they can do it in conference rooms. Others I've had I've had transportation clients have elections on a on a school bus, um, and they'll sort of set it up that way. So all of these things are things that gets worked out um, with the board member um and and the two sides ultimately the board will make the decision but with very very heavy influence by the parties in terms of the time and the dates and things like that um and then just lastly on this in-person versus mail ballots in person has been the sort of uh, preferred method of the board since the beginning of time um it, it is first it's administratively easier i would say um to have if people are at the workplace already and there's a voting slot during their time frame for them to do that. Um, but when COVID hit, the board set up an entire you know, they issued a memo and there was a case called um, Aspirus Quinoa that was decided in November of 2020 where it set up a six factor test where they said during COVID um, if, uh, if any of these factors are met, this is gonna defer to a mail ballot election. And the first 70 or so elections during COVID were all by mail. Um, and, and employers, really, if, if employers are the ones that wanted to do it in person, had to say all of these factors, we can meet all these factors, and that included things like um, uh, that there's no COVID outbreaks in the facility, that the, uh, the, the, the county that we're in, uh, which has been changed a little bit recently, but essentially the overall numbers here are down under a certain threshold, um, that employers are going to take certain steps in the election process to make it safe to have an election in person. And that can include having to buy one individual pencil for everyone that might vote, having sanitizer at each at voting station, making glass partitions for the board and observers. So, um, and and frankly, in that case, um, chair now chair Chairman McFerrin stated sort of in, in a concurring opinion that she thought we should look not just during COVID but beyond and are mail ballot elections more preferred um, and should we think about even once we get out of this pandemic, if we ever do uh, that, that that should be the focus, I will say, in my experience recently. Um, it sort of shifted back even in the preference of the regions to say we'd rather do it in person. Um, it's just a lot easier. The mail ballot is a little bit more cumbersome in getting it out and making sure of the addresses. So um, even with the the covid restrictions still. in. Um, I've gotten a sense that parties and in even the regions are, are are sort of going back to let's just do it in person if if, if we if we can do it safely. Um, and then my last slide here before I send it over to Paige, um, the sort of end game to all of this is is the is the collective bargaining process, which I probably could spend a couple hours on. Um, I'm going to give you a couple minutes on it. Um, let's if the union wins the election, the employees vote to unionize. What that means is that obligation I talked about at the beginning where employer, the parties are obligated under the act to meet at reasonable times and reasonable places. So what that means is there's no specific thing that's going to go into a collective bargaining agreement. And and the board can't require an employer or a union to agree to anything. Um, It's sort of the nice flexibility of the act. But as you, you might imagine, there are things that have become common in collective bargaining agreements, you know, things about wages, no strike clause, um, grievance and arbitration procedures, which is really a way to administer issues that employees might have on, you know, if there's a violation of the collective bargaining agreement, rather than having to file in court, you file a grievance and, and if it can't get resolved, you go to an independent arbitrator and he or she'll make a decision about whether the contract was violated. But Um, But really, the process itself, and this is, um, it it can differ from, you know, party to party, employer to employer, case to case, but usually based on recent statistics, your first contracts likely going to take around a year to negotiate, Um, and the reason being is this is the first time the parties are contractually obliging, and and frankly, the employer side contractually obligating itself to do certain things, Um, and everything's new. So every single sort of line in the contract needs to be scrutinized, and it needs to kind of, and it's in a, and it's a process um, on, on both sides. And, and you know, sometimes it feels like a war of attrition, but usually, at some point, the parties come to agreements and they come to compromises. And at the end, they've got this contract, uh, the collective bargaining agreement, which governs the workplace for three, five, however many years the parties, um, the parties agree to, and. From then on until the end, but when you have to negotiate a new contract, those rules, you know, again, those govern. And, and employees then have the right, like I said, if they think um, they were the biggest protection. I would say is 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 um, employment protection. So you go from basically being at will to having a just cause provision. Again, that's not required, but most contracts have it, where you can't terminate an employee without just cause, and that creates its own group of of things that you need to meet, and, and an employer needs to prove. I had cause to terminate this person. It wasn't just I didn't want him there um, or, or her there. It was I've got to prove that, that there was a reason why. Um, so anyway, that's the sort of end game in all of this. Um, as I said, I, there's, there's a lot of stuff packed in here. So um, we're, we're happy to answer questions at the end of this, but I'm going to pass it over to Paige now. Um, and of course, again, if you've got questions now or later, I'm happy to happy to, to respond to those. All
2: right. Thanks so much, Damien. Um, can I get my presentation up here? I
0: think I'm still sharing here. Hold on a second.
2: All right.
0: Oh, here it is. Sorry.
2: Okay. Great. So um, hi, everyone. Uh, Damien covered a lot of ground. Um, I'm going to sort of dig in a little bit on a little bit on some of the nuances under the act that have to do with um, how we look at what constitutes protected concerted activity. Uh, So while Damien was focused a little bit more on uh, the union side of things, how does the union, how does the workplace become unionized? What's the process? This will look at um, the more general protections that apply to all employees under the Act. So what is, um, well, I should start by saying the presentation is going to focus on the National Labor Relations Act, um, but there are, as Damian mentioned, parallel protections uh, for public employees under state law, with it, which is Chapter 150E. Um, And that statute largely tracks the National Labor Relations Act, um, and in some areas is more expansive. I'll I'll highlight just three things for you, um, three differences between uh, the state and federal law. One is the right to strike, uh, which, as Damien mentioned, is a very strong economic weapon for both employees and unions. Um, In the private sector, so under the National Labor Relations Act, that is protected. In the public sector, under Chapter 150, the right to strike is not protected. Um Damien also mentioned uh, a process called a card check. Um, again, that's not available under, um, under the federal law. It is available under the state law. And um, there is hope um, that, uh, that, the, that the National Labor Relations Board might return um, to an old doctrine called Joy Silk, where there would be the availability of a of a card check under under federal law as well. But um, I'll also say, and uh, Damian will probably agree, that the board uh, is moving at a frustratingly slow pace, at least for, for union side attorneys. So I, I, I don't know if we'll see that actually happen. happen. Um, and the third difference that I'll highlight is uh, with respect to supervisors. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about who uh, who is protected under the federal law. Um, and supervisors are, are are not a category of employees that are protected under the under the National Library Relations Act. Um, in the public sector, they are, and you can actually see um, uh, bargaining units of just supervisors. Um, so they do have a right to be unionized. They're protected um, uh, by the state law. That's very different than than uh, the federal law, where they're uh, explicitly excluded from the protections. So um, Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act is really what creates um, the protections and the rights um, for employees to engage in what's called protected concerted activity. Um, It also protects just what you would think of as traditional union activity, forming a union, um, organizing, bargaining, acting as a union representative. but what's a little bit more nuanced is how is this is this phrase of protected concerted activity and we're going to unpack that um, because it's a really key key phrase and as damien mentioned the board um you know uh interprets the act and that has changed a lot from administration to administration um the parallels you know section 7 creates the right section 8 of the national labor relations act um enforces those rights. So, this is um, sort of a list of the various ways um, that employers might uh, get in trouble under the Act, violate the Act. Um, and uh, those are referred to as unfair labor practices. So if you hear me say that, that just means that the employer has done something um, that that has uh, violated the rights that are guaranteed under Section 7. Uh, the first unfair labor practice is under Section 8A1, um and uh, that's when an employer interferes with restraints or co- coerces an employee in the exercise of section seven rights uh, the next that uh, is pretty common is section 8 A3, um, which is discrimination or retaliation against employees um, for engaging in protected concerted activity. Um, and finally and this is more with respect to to unions, but there's, um, an unfair labor practice charge under Section 8A5 when an employer refuses or fails to bargain in good faith with the union. Um, so yeah, those are the three, I think that most, most commonly we're dealing with. All right, so who is protected by the act? Um, and there's a common misperception that the National Labor Relations Act it's all about unionized employees. Um, the act is actually much broader and protects all employees, regardless or not, uh, regardless of whether or not you are in a unionized workplace. And it includes undocumented workers, um, and uh, yes, yeah. the the people who are excluded are the categories of workers like supervisors, managers, independent contractors. Um, farm and domestic workers, which is a holdover from the you know, 1930s when when the act was passed, um, and other very discrete categories of workers. But in terms of coverage, the act is extremely broad. Um, and it protects workers, those categories of workers, who act concertedly. And that means together with or on the authority of at least one other employee in themselves. And I'm going to dig into what exactly concerted means because it's not as straightforward as it might seem. So what is concerted activity? Um, Very generally speaking, it's the intention to band together to improve wages or working conditions. And typically just having a speaker and a listener is sufficient. So you have a worker who's complaining about you know we used to get uh, an hour for lunch and now we only get half an hour talking to a group of workers um, so that should be sufficient to satisfy the definition of concerted any conversation um, about uh, uh, wages working conditions breaks safety issues um, those kinds of things are considered inherently concerted activity um there was a lot of uh, ado about social media cases some years back, probably many years back. but it actually turned out that it was pretty simple um you know if if a worker goes on Facebook and you know starts complaining about you know how their supervisors treating them, and then a bunch of coworkers like and comment on the post, that would be considered concerted activity um there's uh, also been cases about uh, whether an employee who files a complaint or a charge, for example discrimination charge or some other um, legal complaint against the employer um, whether employees supporting that uh, constitutes a concerted activity. What is very clearly um, not concerted activity uh, according to the board are, Individual gripes. Um, so, if you are, you know, just complaining about your own thing and you're not talking to about it with anyone else, and it's not a shared uh, thing or it doesn't have to doesn't have any nexus to the workplace, um, the board is most likely going to find that that activity is not concerted and therefore not protected by the act. Again, the, the key here is that um, you know there's there's a at least a worker and then someone else listening or participating in the discussion. Um, and there's a case here called Fresh and Easy um, Neighborhood Market, which is from 2014, um, which I've highlighted was kind of a uh, an interesting case when it came out on the issue of the definition of concertedness. Um, okay. So even though the board has historically interpreted concerted activities to be pretty broad, um, under the Trump board, uh, there were a series of cases which really cut back on that broad definition of concertedness. One of them um, is called all-state maintenance. Um, And this case had to do with a group of sky caps who um, sky caps are the people at the airport who assist passengers with their luggage. Um, And the bulk of their compensation is um, from passenger tips. And so uh, in this particular case, the supervisor had approached a group of SkyCaps and told them, you know, hey, there's this team over here, this group of uh, sports team, I think, and they need some help with their luggage and equipment. And in front of the coworkers, one of the SkyCaps said to the supervisor, you know, hey, we did this, a similar job last year, and we didn't get any tips for it. Um, and when the equipment arrived, the skycaps refused to handle it and walked away. All four of them were terminated. And so when this case came before um, the board on an ADA three, there was a there was a question as to whether or not their activity was concerted, um, or whether this was individual griping. Um, and the board found that um, even though um, you know, this, this statement about the tips by one of the skycaps was made in the presence of the other co-workers, um, it was still just an individual gripe, um, so the board found that the activity in that particular case was not concerted and not um, and not protected by the act. Oh, I'll just mention one other case that sort of falls in this category. Um, is a case called Quicken, and in that case, similarly, um, there were two employees who were having a conversation in a restroom at work that was open to the public. One of them was complaining about um, a certain customer and using expletives, and a customer was wasting his time. Um, The other replied, you know, like, yeah, I could see you're really frustrated, something to that extent. Supervisor happened to be in the bathroom and overheard this back and forth, and the employee who was complaining about a customer was fired. And again, the board held that this was like an individual gripe and was not not concerted activity. And as I'll explain a little bit later, there's a possibility, or at least there's an intention, um, you know, the general counsel of the National Relations Board really wants to see these two cases overturned and go back to the broader standard um, that we were under prior to the Trump board. All right, so we talked about what does concerted mean. Uh, what is protected activity? Because if you recall, the statute says um, the key phrase is protected concerted activity. So what is protected and what's not? Um, any activity that's for the purpose of quote mutual aid or protection is protected. Um, this is an objective standard. So an employee's um, subjective motivations for doing or saying whatever they're um, doing or saying is is not relevant. Um, the board will look at it from an objective viewpoint. So protective acti- activity includes sharing information, discussing um, or protesting the terms and conditions of your employment. Terms and conditions of employment is extremely broad. Anything that impacts your work experience, basically. Um, the most obvious things I mentioned before, like hours and wages, um, issues with supervisors, um, Anything of that nature. Uh, there's also been um, cases on, you know, the question of whether uh, political and social justice advocacy, like um, speech or conduct connected with, for example, Black Lives Matter, whether that's a sufficient nexus to the employee's um, workplace to be protected by the act. okay but again these two cases come back to haunt us um all and quicken and these again were under the trump board and sort of departed from what was um what was a broader standard um, before they were were decided um so in the skycap case um the board not only decided that the skycap comment was not concerted but it also wasn't protected um because uh, he was complaining about tips AND TIPS WERE AN ISSUE BETWEEN EMPLOYEES um, AND CUSTOMERS AND NOT BETWEEN EMPLOYEES AND THE EMPLOYER OR THE CUSTOMER HAD THEIR OWN DISCRETION TO LEAVE A TIP OR NOT. Um, AND SO ON THAT GROUND, THE BOARD FOUND THAT um, THE cap COMMENT um, WAS ALSO NOT PROTECTED. SIMILARLY, um, IN QUICKEN, THE BOARD held, uh, HELD THAT IN ADDITION TO NOT BEING CONCERTED, uh, the employee's complaint uh, to a co-worker about a customer was also not protected because there was not any evidence that either participant in the conversation intended to induce some kind of group action or to change employer policy. And again, you can see a similarity between the two cases because the complaint that the employee was making in Quicken was, again, about a customer, and this was more, um, as the board thought an issue between employees and um, customers and not employees and their employer or an employee and his employer. All right, there are circumstances where conduct, which would might otherwise be protected by the act, loses protection of the act because of um, the manner, manner in which an employee goes about um, engaging in that speech or conduct. So abusive or offensive comments um can you hear me abusive or offensive comments um, are are you know made in conduct in connection with section 7 activity are generally unprotected and historically this was limited to pretty extreme conduct like threats of violence um, uh, other types of threats Um, Things like using explicit language and sort of the heat of the moment as you're complaining about some workplace issue, uh, particularly when it involved union representatives, uh, representatives would would sometimes be protected. Um, And the idea with union representatives is that the board has said in the past that um, union representatives are not sort of wearing their employee hat in those moments, they're representing the union and they're not expected to act like diplomats. So that's one case um, that's one situation where an employee might lose protection of the Act, where um, the thing that they're talking about, like wages or working conditions, um, m- might otherwise be protected. Uh, false public disparagement or defamation um, is also uh, is also unprotected by the Act, um, and Work slowdowns, so I meant, we've mentioned before that there's um, protected right to strike under the National Labor Relations Act. Um, what's not protected are work slowdowns. So, hey, everybody band together, you know, say we're only going to make 10 widgets instead of 50 or whatever it is. Um, and partial or intermittent strikes, um, uh can be unprotected and wildcat strikes which are, which are strikes in, in violation of a no strike clause in a collective bargaining agreement um, there was um, a case a couple years back involving walmart uh, where you might recall that there were these uh, black friday strikes at various walmart locations um, and employees who had participated in those strikes were disciplined um, and that discipline was upheld again i believe it was one of the trump board as well under the theory that intermittent strikes um, are not protected. And intermittent strikes meaning not um, one pro- prolonged strike, but a series of short strikes. All right, and uh, those standards that the board uses when it's looking at um, protected concerted activity and deciding um, when uh, protected conduct might otherwise lose protection of the act. Used to be a little bit more flexible, but there was a case again under the Trump board and in, in 2020 called General Motor, Motors that sort of undid that and applied um, a single standard to to all cases where there used to be sort of different standards depending on the circumstances. Um, I'm not gonna go to too much detail on that, just looking at the time, but um, you know, union side practitioners have been arguing that General Motors is really um, a case that should only be applied when there's protected concerted activity um, that involves, uh, you know, allegations that there was abusive conduct. Um, Employer side practitioners, I find, um, view it more broadly. Um, But either way, General Motors changed the landscape in this area. Okay, there's a lot of information on this slide. Um, but the general the gist of it is that the the National Labor Relations Act um, is it, constantly changing. Uh, as Damien said it's the the board is this five member quasi-judicial board um and it sort of operates uh you know what what the law looks like under the National Labor Relations Act sort of depends who's in the White House um, and it's just a pendulum thats Swings back and forth, and it, it makes it, it makes it both frustrating as a protect practitioner, but also is interesting because it's very dynamic. Um, so right now we're uh, we're in a place where the majority of the board is is comprised of democratic um, democratically appointed um, nom- uh, nominated and appointed um, uh, members, but. They're moving very slowly, um, and and another thing that uh, I should mention of just about the political nature of the board and the way that the act operates is that it, there's a general counsel of the board, and the general counsel is akin to like a district attorney. Um, they kind of they they decide um, sort of what cases uh, uh, should be brought, um, which direction they think the law should go in, and they they have a lot of Way um, in, in terms of changing the law and getting cases before the board um, to change the law. The general counsel right now is a woman, uh, Jennifer Bruso. Um, she's issued a lot of memoranda since she got into uh, her current position and started serving as a general counsel. Um, she's one of the most pro-union general counsel um, to ever hold the position. I think it's fair to say. Um, And in January 2022, she filed a brief in a case called American Federation for Children um, that echoed a lot of the things that she had said uh, in previous memos, um, but uh, pretty expansively laid out all of the cases that were issued under the Trump board, or many of the cases that were issued under the Trump board that she would like to see overturned by the board. Um, So those are listed here. um, And it's a pretty good outline of of her goals and um, where she wants to see the board go in the next few years um, and as you can see it includes the cases that i've talked about all state and quick uh, Allstate, and quicken as well as general motors um and on those um in her brief on quicken and all she uh noted in her brief that it incorrectly and, and unnecessarily narrowed the scope of what constitutes concerted activity so again she wants to go the board go back um, to the broader definition of concertedness and in terms of General Motor uh, motor she uh, also thinks that that should be confined to cases involving genuinely abusive conduct um, like uh, like racial slurs um, profane uh, profane individual attacks against individuals and those kinds of things and I'm not going to go through all of the other ones but they're there in case, in case you're interested. Um, and then here, just uh, a, this is just a small sampling of, of some of the memos that she's issued. Um, these were issued recently, uh, or somewhat recently. The first is, you know, I, I don't know if we've t- touched on it yet, but the remedies under the National Labor Relations Act are pretty outdated. Um, you know, one of uh, the remedies, for example, requires the employer to post a notice. Um, I mean, that's really harkens back to like I don't know the, the '50s when there's was like a, a bulletin board that people, everyone looked to to get their news um, when we didn't have you know computers and social media and all of that. Um, so one of the remedies is to, you know the employer post a notice, but you know like we violated the act in this way and we won't do it again. Um, so, so this, this memo by, uh, General Counselor Brusso was really seeking to expand to the possible limits of the wording of the act, all the remedies that, that could be sought. Um, so for example, not just if someone, if the employer, um, fired someone, uh, who, for example, was, um, a lead union organizer, um, and, um, and, and, you know, in the case of successful under under eight a three, you know, she's saying that that person should be entitled to to not only back pay, um, but things like late fees on credit cards that they had to use because they lost a the job, um, you know, legal fees, um, all all kinds of financial losses. And the second one that I would highlight is um, she wants to see the board. Um, uh, uh, make it basically make captive audience uh, meetings unlawful and captive audience meetings are when an employer calls all the employees into a room um during work time um or, or individually and just like you know tells them why they shouldn't support the union or their views on the union or whatever um and this happens quite frequently in uh, during union organizing campaigns um, and her memo states that she she thinks these are sort of unlawful um, under under 8a1, um, and that employees have a quote protected right not to listen um, under the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, so this is just a quick uh, summary, some key takeaways. Uh, the NLRA is incredibly expansive in terms of its scope, who it covers—all um, employees, with with limited exceptions. Um, definition of concertedness is together with around the authority of at least one other employee. Uh, protected um, is an uh, an objective test, um, and the activity just has to be linked to terms and conditions of employment. Um, The previous Trump board has significantly narrowed the definition of protected concerted activity, but the the new GC is hoping to reverse course um, and is actively litigating some of those issues. And finally, that the the federal law is constantly changing. Um, And what it is uh, this year could be very different a few years from now because it is subject to um, political whims and um, the decision-making process. That's all I have. Thank you. I don't know if we have any questions. Yeah. Um. Hi there. Oops. Video. Hold oh on. What happened? Okay. So we have one question that is, um, who is seeking the concerted information? And I think the way I would I interpret the question is kind of what's the importance of the concerted activity? Um, why does that matter so much?
0: Yeah. I, I mean. I- I'm, I can take a first stab at it. The, the act, the act itself, actually protects concerted activity. It's right cooked in there. So as as Paige um, explained uh, very thoroughly, if I say, "Look, my chair it, it has got a hole in it, and it's uncomfortable to sit in," and I go to my employer and and raise heck with 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 the employer and say this, is not, you know, blah blah blah, and I'm inappropriate with it that's not really concerted, because it's only me that's dealing with it. And that's a personal issue. But if I said, look, all the chairs in in the factory are broken, and we all get hurt, when we sit on it, then it's because there's sort of a collective piece of that I'm trying to engage, and and we're doing it together. And so that's the simplest way to look at it. The act itself um, makes it clear that it's got to be a group, uh, a group sort of endeavor. And that's what concerted means. So that's really the key takeaway on that. Um, And sometimes, where a lot of these cases, at least in my experience, have come down is, even if it's a personal um, complaint, does it stretch out into affecting everybody? Um, And there have been cases where they've said, even this person raised an individual issue, it really affected everyone versus something that you can really sort of narrow down and say it's really just Damien's issue, um, doesn't affect anyone else but him. And in that case, You may have other protections, but not the National Labor Relations Act in terms of. um, So that's why the key issue of it being concerted is it really brings the protections of the act as opposed to just individual. And I am hesitant to use the word gripes because it sort of has case law implications now. But a a personal issue versus something that sort of affects more than one um, is where you're going to move into the protections of the NLRA. Yeah, the only thing I
2: would I would add to that is it's important. Stepping back uh, a little bit, because uh, if the employer does anything as a result of you engaging in protected concerted activity, you're you're protected in that you can go file some, uh, a charge with the National Labor Relations Board um, and allege that 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 any adverse action that was taken by the employer, whether it's you were fired or disciplined or whatever, um, was on account of protected activity, and so. Um, that's sort of the importance of, of determining whether or not it's concerted.
0: yeah and and Paige right. mentioned this um in her presentation um what what they'll ultimately need to prove is it was because of that protected activity that that, that they were fired and then they should get some redress so I always um for those that practice on the employment side of things I always sort of um uh, Talk about right line like the McDonald Douglas it, it's sort of a burden shifting analysis, um, not exactly the same but but somewhat similar and, and again at the end of the day, uh, as Paige said you, you you bring your complaint to the board and, and ultimately what the sort of burden is going to be is was it because of that protected activity that there was an adverse employment action versus. Um, it may have been part of it, but the employer did something else that was beyond that, that loses the protection of the act, which Paige talked about. So as always, there's sort of varying nuances on, on what needs to be proven, but but that's, yeah, I think that's a that's a good way to put it. But right line is a key case to think about if you're practicing in this field and, and where it um, gives you the roadmap on, on what, what both sides would be arguing and the burden shifting analysis that the board's going to look
1: at. Paige, I I wanted to follow up on something um, back to going back to concerted activity. Um, As I understand it, what you were saying is it's okay for a person to take their own initiative to voice concerns about what's happening in the workplace, not their own initiative, to voice on their own concerns about what's happening um, in the workplace, so long as there's some involvement in other people in the initiation of that complaint for example so is that what's meant by on the authority of others um mm-hmm. so you have to be able to show that you had some kind of a communication with somebody before you sort of went off and started complaining about all the chairs in the office
2: yeah i, I think that's right um there there has to be some some communication with other workers. Um, the the Allstate case is significant because um, even though the employee made the complaint about tips with the other workers standing around him, and then they all walked off together, the board said that wasn't concerted. I mean, it's kind of hard to understand how they got there. Um, but so, yeah, you know, <laughs> raising a complaint, I guess, in front of other workers, but not having communicated with them. Or evidence that there was communication beforehand is not enough now. Um, so yeah, that was that was, that was a pretty tough case.
1: <laughs> so is is that the distinction that they drew in Allstate was that the there was no prior authorization? So it wasn't enough to show that everybody, yeah, yeah, we agree we're gonna walk off together to establish the concertedness. The com- the complainant had to have had first gotten some sort of authorization before they raised it.
2: I think so. Um, or at least other people should have, you know, would have had to have spoken up as well um, or said, like, yeah, you know, we're not doing this for no tips. Um, But again, I think the fact that they all walked off together, I don't know. I don't know how you don't.
1: Sounds pretty concerted to me, but I, yeah. I, I'm just a small <laughs> lawyer here. <laughs> All right, well, we are now at uh, the time for the lunch break. Thank you, um, Damian and Paige, for that really interesting discussion. Um, And may we uh, have more uh, developments in labor law in the future with more unions to to develop. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And on that note, uh, unless Hillary wants to make a countervailing uh, (laughs) statement um we're gonna we'll take a break for an hour so um shall we come back at 203 to be fair
0: that sounds good thank you jim thanks all right thank you bye